0: I'm again very grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you on the topic of courage. As I said last time, I'm no expert on courage, neither in theory nor in practice. But I felt really that the topic chose me from the variety of things I'd been reading. And as I said last time, it's like when you buy a new model car. Previously you haven't noticed that particular model, but then you start seeing it everywhere. And that's been the case with me. I've been seeing the need for courage everywhere. I'm not talking about physical courage, as we will celebrate uh, later in the service, and I'm not talking about the courage to face the vicissitudes of life. As someone in the Wednesday service said to me, growing old is not for the faint-hearted. It's more about moral courage courage, being prepared to stand up for things. So these talks are more by way of exploration than exposition. I'll probably raise more questions than I answer and I look forward to learning from you and your feedback. And I suspect that I will barely scratch the surface. I'm sure anyone will say, well, why didn't you talk about that? And there's much that could be said. Uh, Last time, we looked at courage in leadership, and I looked at some of those who were prepared to speak out at significant personal cost on contentious issues in our society and against the pressure groups who were trying to silence debate. Coincidentally, the following week, there was a large conference held in London where thought leaders from around the world considered these and other issues – It was the inaugural conference of the newly formed Alliance for Responsible Citizenship and you would probably describe it as a conservative think tank, whether you think that's good or bad, it's up to you. But what encouraged me was that many speakers were sympathetic to Christianity, even if they weren't Christians, and they saw the importance of the Judeo-Christian basis or foundation of our Western society. Last time I also looked at some courageous leaders from the Bible, the towering figures of Elijah and Paul, but also the less prominent figures of Obadiah and Ananias. We also looked at a couple of courageous leaders during the the ages, and specifically the early Bible translators John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. And the thing was, many of these stood up for what they believed was true, what they thought was the will of God, despite the threat to their lives. They were not out to coerce others, but they resisted coercion because of what they thought was right. And so this week I want to consider the challenge to personal courage for us as Christians. The first point I wish to make is that I don't think courage is an optional extra for Christians. Jesus told his would-be followers that they needed to count the cost before following him. He said that his followers would need to carry their cross, which doesn't sound to me like an easy option. And in the past, I've been somewhat uncomfortable when I've heard an evangelist tell young people that Jesus would solve their problems. Now, there may be some truth in that, to some extent, but it's also somewhat misleading. Jesus challenged his followers to take the hard road. And I said last time, that, and today, that I've been seeing courage everywhere. So during the week, I was uh, doing some exercise, and I was listening to a sermon by Dick Lucas, who was uh, past rector of St. Helens' Bishopsgate in London. He was talking about the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, I recommend you go home and read it. It's a great story. The Pharisees, you see, were objecting to the miracle because it happened on a Sabbath day. They interviewed the man who was healed a couple of times. They interviewed his parents. They interviewed the man again, always looking for a loophole to be able to condemn Jesus. But each time the young man firmed, each time the opposition of the Pharisees firmed the young man in his uh, understanding of both what was at stake and who Jesus was. So he started off thinking the man, or referring to him as the man, then a prophet, and then from God. And Lucas reckons that the hallmark of this young man was a genuine open-mindedness. He was open to God and open to the evidence. He would go as far as the evidence took him and no further. And Lucas comments that this open-mindedness must have as its concomitant courage. You cannot have this open-mindedness to the truth in a world where truth is at a discount without courage. And he recommended that for students, if they are studying the truth, they need to have courage. And by and large, people prefer prefer their own prejudices and their own illusions to the truth. In our second Bible reading, Peter writes to his readers, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So what does it mean to do good, to do right, especially in the face of opposition? And what did Jesus mean by saying that his followers should be salt and light in the world? Back in Genesis 11... At the call of Abraham, he was told, I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And I wonder whether we, as Christians, see ourselves as inheriting this promise, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When the Jews were in exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC, Jeremiah wrote them a letter. And in this letter, he said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Build houses and settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. You're going to be there for a while. Settle down. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Well, we do not live in exile, but we live in a post-Christian society. Is it our role to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And what does that mean? Are we meant to have an influence for good in our society? Well, that's sort of the challenge. How do you put it into practice? Well, uh, the topic of courage resonates with me because of my parentage. My parents uh, came to Australia after the war... They survived the war. Many of their relatives didn't. In fact, they were swallowed up by the Holocaust. And I've often wondered, what was it like to be a German under Hitler? Why did so many people support him? Why did so few resist? And I've just picked up three examples here of people who resisted. The first one, August Lundmesser, I was put onto by Jeff Bloor, who told me about this photograph. This was at a uh, shipyard where Hitler came to launch a new vessel. And as you can see, everyone was saluting his Hitler, except for Lundmesser, who had his arms crossed. August had fallen in love with a Jewish girl. He hadn't been allowed to marry her because that would dilute the German race. But they had a couple of children and in the end his resistance caught up with him and he was sent to do hard labour and he died. Oskar Schindler is reasonably well known because of the movie and the novel about what he did. During the war he employed Jews in a factory and it said that he exhausted his fortune bribing Nazi officials to be able to retain his Jewish workforce. Now, I'm hopeless on names, so when I was trying to think of this, I had to do some googling to find his name. And in the process of doing so, I actually found there was a long list of people recognised for protecting Jews during the war. Um, And many of them had some religious conviction and that's why they were committed to doing what they saw was good. And, of course, there was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was uh, raised in a cultured elite family, real leadership material. Um, And his family saw what was coming with the rise of Hitler and National Socialism. He had been in the US teaching... And he had been in the UK pastoring and he could easily have set out the war in the US. But he felt that if he was going to have a message for people in Germany after the war, he needed to experience what they experienced. He held a significant position in the World Council of Churches and used it to keep foreign church dignitaries, especially George Bell, Bishop of Chichester, informed of the real situation in Germany and the German church. Um, He helped establish the Confessing Church, which was a group of pastors who are not prepared to compromise by joining the National Church, which wanted to acknowledge Hitler as the head of the church and also to discriminate against the Jews. He also made some indirect contribution to the writing of the Barman Declaration which is an amazing statement of faith. Um, It's not part of our Anglican heritage, but it's well worth reading and studying. It was said of Bonhoeffer afterwards uh, by George Bell, but let me pick this one. This is a quote by Gerhard Leipholz, the um, uh, brother-in-law of Bonhoeffer. He said Bonhoeffer was as open as any man could be to all things which make life beautiful. He rejoiced in the love of his parents, his sisters, his brothers, his fiancée, his many friends. He loved the mountains, the flowers, the animals, the greatest and simple things in life. His geniality, geniality and inbought chivalry, his love of music, art and literature, the firmness of his character, his personal charm and his readiness to listen made him friends everywhere. But what marked him most was his unselfishness and preparedness to help others up to the point of self-sacrifice. Whenever others hesitated to undertake a task that required special courage, Bonhoeffer was ready to take the risk. Jordan Peterson has posed the question, if he had been there could he have had any confidence that he would have acted differently to the bulk of the Germans? Um, And I, these sorts of things have impact on me, and I have a determination not to be swallowed up by groupthink. Whether I'm successful or not, that's another question. Um, I actually thought of putting in these ideas about... uh, my parents and so on, before the current world situation evolved. But having done that, I thought I ought to leave it in. Last time we looked at some contentious social issues and the the reason for selecting some of those was because of the impact on children. Um, last week in the Family Fun Day, we talked about what Jesus thought of children and as since I have a number of grandchildren these things are important to me too. And there's a book called Stolen Youth, which thinks about the impact of various, these various contentious issues on children. It's written in a, an American context, and I think things are significantly worse in America than they are here. On the question of race, I think the America is much more divided than we are. But a couple of years ago, the ABC ran a series, The School That Tried to End Racism. It was based on a similar BBC program from the UK. It had activities with built-in unfairness to emphasise the problem of unearned privilege. It had discussion sessions where 8- to 10-year-old students talked about what they had learned. One blonde girl meditated on her white privilege and apologised for it. Non-white children were left in tears because they were told they were victims of a deeply racist society. The problem I had was that I couldn't see that the school was a hotbed of racism. So why were they pushing this agenda onto these children? On the question of climate catastrophism, It troubles me that teachers are frightening children with apocalyptic scenarios. Why are they co-opting children as foot soldiers in protest marches? Do the children have understanding of the issues involved? Do they have the maturity to evaluate competing claims? Have they been presented with alternative views? As this book says, every hour spent on indoctrination is an hour less spent on fundamental learning. So as I thought about these things, I wondered how should I respond as a concerned grandparent? And the answer I came up with is, where possible, I will urge the parents of our grandkids to be involved in their children's school so they know what is being taught. And where possible, I would urge the parents to adopt the advice of Jonathan Haidt, Jonathan Haidt is a sociologist and psychologist in the United States. And when he considers the harm caused by social media, he recommends that children should not be given access to social media before the age of 16. I'd like to now think about the example of Daniel. Uh, John Lennox wrote a book Against the Flow, which is a great title for these talks. Um, where he looks at uh, Daniel and his experiences. And as Tim introduced it, uh, Daniel was caught up in the conquest of his country and taken from their homeland and trained up to be leaders in Babylon. And they could have resisted everything and say, look, this is a pagan society. I want to have nothing to do with it. Find someone else. Alternatively, he could have said, well, let's bide our time. Let's wait for the situation to stabilise and then we can think about what we should say. I don't know if they were aware of Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, but what they did was they went along with most things, but they raised the question of food. We don't know exactly why. Maybe because they were brought up uh, with certain food laws, they wanted to stick with them. Maybe it was a question of how the animals were being slaughtered, or maybe it was a matter of avoiding food with idolatrous uh, associations. Maybe the food had been offered to their pagan gods. So they resisted respectfully, and their stand was honoured by God. They had proved worthy, and they would face more extreme trials. In the future. John Lennox reflects on his own experiences as a young academic or as a young research student. Some senior Oxford dons cornered him and told him that if he wanted to be a success in academia, he would need to give up his foolish notion of his Christian faith. So he asked the dons, well what did they have to offer as an alternative worldview?" And when they had put forward their idea, he said, well, actually, I think Christianity is better than that. And I believe that his stand was honoured by God, both in his academic career and in his Christian apologetics. He was prepared to put his head above the parapet, and he was able to debate publicly with the likes of atheists like Richard Dawkins. Now, I include the examples of Daniel and Lennox here because when they made this stand, they were not leaders. They were caught up in something and they were prepared to take a stand. There was a critical choice and they committed themselves. Jordan Peterson has observed that it's easy for academics to defer speaking out what they really think till they're more secure, uh, whether they, when they have tenure perhaps or when they have independent funding. But he says there's always a cost when you are faced with a choice, whether you speak out or remain silent. If you speak out, there is opposition, maybe less than you expected, actually, and maybe it'll be easier next time round. But if you stay silent, there is a personal compromise involved, and maybe that will make it harder to speak out next time. Martin Niemöller was another German pastor. Initially, he uh, supported Hitler and National Socialism, but once it became clear uh, what this was all about, he set up a pastor's emergency league, which then morphed into the Confessing Church. Like Bonhoeffer, he was imprisoned, but he survived. And after the war, he famously wrote... First they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Well I hope that Some of the things that I've shared with you might challenge you to think about these things, whether you agree or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, But just to think about the role of courage for us as Christians. And so let me conclude by reminding you of what Peter said to his readers Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason of the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And as Jesus said to his followers at the Last Supper, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart or be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Amén.